One thing to look out for, uh, it is not official as yet, but if, <clears throat> if the left succeeds in putting together a coalition, that means uh, Lapid uh, together with Meretz and Labour uh, and even Bennett, I'm not sure about Tsar, but if the left becomes the government, that is an incredible move toward darkness. Because it means that the heir of Rav, and that's who they are, they are the enemies of the Jews, or I should say the enemies of Judaism, because, you know, obviously they are basically anti-Haredi, and probably in a certain respect, they're certainly anti-Torah, um, then that will mean that the era of Rav has been victorious, which is a tremendous leap into darkness. And that would be because uh, the, uh, the Gula needs it. In other words, as I have mentioned many times, that <clears throat> uh, if, the, if the Mashiach comes, because the world is now in the Memtesh-Shari which is the 49 levels of defilement. And that's why the Mashiach comes, because the God does not want the Jewish people to slip into the 50th gate, which is terrible. So therefore, he's going to bring the Mashiach as a restart button. Then there's a tremendous prosecution, because essentially the Jews do not deserve to be part of the redemption, or that there should be a redemption. So therefore, God, when he does do that, being the Mashiach, because the world is going to slip into the 50th gate, what he has to do is bring a tremendous amount of atonement for the Jewish people, so that they can deserve the Mashiach. And as a result of that, it becomes, it becomes a time when there's tremendous amount of suffering, and darkness, and uh, and so on, uh, in order for things to balance out, and the Jews should deserve the redemption. I mean, it's the exact same thing that happened in Egypt when Moshe Rabbeinu came, and I said this before, when Moshe Rabbeinu came, and uh, it got much worse, to such an extent where Moshe himself was tremendously confused, and he came back to God and said, Why have you done evil to this people? Which, of course, he should never have said, because God does not do evil. And, but anyway, he was so confounded that he said it, and because he couldn't believe it. Here God sends him to redeem the Jews, and it gets much worse, because Paroi, Pharaoh, decreed that they have to gather their own straw, which made it much, much worse for them, because they had to do that at night, and the tally of the bricks could not be diminished. And the reason why God did that, because the Jews in Egypt, we know, were on the 49th level of Tumah, defilement, and they did not deserve the redemption. So God had to balance and bring them up to deserving the redemption. So therefore, he increased, intensified enormously the suffering. That's what happens. Therefore, if they succeed in putting together a government, that means that we have now gone down 
or whichever way you want to look at it, we have now gone down or up, whatever, or enormously intensified the evil and the suffering. And there will be tremendous suffering to the world of Torah. Because the ones who, the one who will be in charge, this is what I hear, of financial, is uh, Lieberman. And he hates the Haredim. And uh, he's going to take away an enormous amount of money from those people who learn Torah all day and from, uh, uh, you know, just different kind of grants and uh, money for people who work. And Torah, as a result, and the yeshivas will suffer terribly. Besides that, uh, I just heard that somebody in Meretz wants to pass a law. I mean, you've got to hear this to believe it. That anybody who, who does Kirov or tries to influence a minor in terms of keeping Torah uh, is committing a criminal act of which they can go to prison, which is astounding. Wow. I just heard that, yes, which is incredible. You imagine? And I'll probably exclude yeshivas because obviously that's what they do. They have elementary schools, and of course... They're doing of teaching them Torah. But therefore, probably what they're going to say is anybody outside of yeshiva, if anybody tries to convince them to learn Torah and be observant and so on, Kirov, bring the Jewish people back to Torah, he will be guilty of a criminal offense and can go to prison. This is the law that somebody from Meretz wants to bring up uh, if they are elected to government. And that's just the beginning. Then you have Shabbos will become wholesale transgressions, where they will permit Shabbos to be desecrated in all the cities. And what about conversions? That anybody can convert anybody, which means that there will be a wholesale invalidation of all conversions because they'll allow anybody to do it. Then you have, of course, you have marriages, you have divorces, which will be completely invalid, you see. And then they're going to harm the educational system, you see. And then the, the wall will have, you know, many, many uh, women at the wall itself, not, you know, uh, not separated from the men and so on. It's going to be an unbelievable uh, uh, pandemonium in terms of the religious observance in the state of Israel. That's what's going to happen. <clears throat> So what it means is the era of Rav has now taken over, which um, is a victory for the era of Rav and therefore an incredible descent into Tumah, into defilement. And therefore, what it would seem to me is that we are very close to the end. And that victory of the era of Rav is very, very close to the end. This is what's happening, which is incredible. Uh, I want to make a comment. Somebody had mentioned that we were talking about Bernie Sanders, I think last week, and somebody had mentioned that maybe he is the son of uh, Garam, you know, uh, proselytes or converts. Uh, That's why he is so bad. But I wanted to comment and say that it's completely not true. Anybody who becomes a convert, a Ger Tzedek, a true convert, is equal in holiness to a Jew. He's a full-fledged member of the Jewish people. 
And they are in no way inferior to anybody who is Jewish. And therefore, it is a mistake to suggest that uh, he may be from converts is a complete error in terms of what the status of converts are in Judaism. You know, they are tremendously to be commended. In fact, the Gemara says that the reason why, why there's the exile, why the Jews exiled to be amongst the nations of the world, it is because to go and bring the exiles, or rather the converts that exist, or the people who want to convert, that exist in the, uh, among the nations of the world, to bring them back to Judaism. In any case, <clears throat> that's certainly a mistaken thinking, and a convert is a full-fledged Jew uh, with just with all the holiness, righteousness of a, of a Jewish, uh, a, a full-fledged Jew that was born as a Jew. I wanted to con- correct <clears throat> that particular uh, statement, yeah, which uh, I, I did not hear or for whatever, I was not uh, aware of that statement when it was made. Anyway, this is the idea, and we are literally at the cusp, perhaps, of the era of Rav claiming total victory, which will be a disaster. But let's see what happens, you know, if that's well, what's going to happen. Were you shocked that Gideon Sar refused um, Netanyahu's yes. offer? Yes. I am completely stunned. <clears throat> and the reason for that <clears throat> is because I'm, and as far as I'm concerned, God has, God has done three miracles, you know, for certainly for Gideon Tsar. The first miracle is that <clears throat> Netanyahu has not been able to put together a coalition for the fourth time, and this is a historical precedent that never happened in in uh, Israeli political history. The second miracle is that he's only lacking basically two seats to form a coalition. And it's unbelievable that he can't convince two people, that's all he needs to make a coalition of 61 people, that he can't convince two more people from some other party uh, to join him, and he could bribe them with ministries. It's hard to believe that nobody else will join him, even though I'm sure he's bribing them or he's trying to, bribe them with ministries. You see? And that itself is a ness. It's an open miracle. And the third miracle is that Gideon Sa, who only has six seats, is actually offered this position of prime minister. That's, that it's very difficult to understand that. That itself is an incredible miracle and that basically it never happened before. Somebody with six seats and the you know six seats in the Knesset is actually offered to be the prime minister in the first round, not the second round, but the first round. And what he could do, sir, if he was prime minister, is he can change an enormous amount of the difficulties and deficiencies of the Israeli political system at the time that he would be prime minister. In fact, he could do what Trump did. Trump changed America. Within two years already, America looked different. And Gideon Saar could do the same for Israel. He can enormously get rid of the bureaucracy, the regulations that tremendously hamper and block 
Israel from becoming a, a tremendous successful country. And there are many other difficulties uh, in Israel, the cost of living, the price of housing, you see, um, and the, the poverty level. And uh, there are just so many things that need tremendous amount of leadership. And if he was given the prime ministership, which he is, he, it's being offered him, he could do that. He could turn Israel around to become an incredibly uh, successful and prosperous nation. The second thing that would happen uh, is that he would show the Israeli population that he is an incredibly uh, competent and tremendous candidate to be the prime minister, even in an election, you see. After Netanyahu leaves, which will be actually only in a matter of time, but the people would see that he can function as a prime minister with a superb ability. So that's the second reason why he should take it. And the third idea is that he can introduce the department and the Ministry of Education and actually bring in tremendous amount of Torah and Judaism into the secular schools, public schools. <clears throat> I'd mentioned the public schools in Israel have 1.5 million kids, and they receive almost no Jewish education. And whatever they do receive, okay, is pluralistic. We what is taught to them that there are many forms of Judaism, which is complete anti-Torah. And he could change that because he would be in charge of the Ministry of Education. So could you imagine what he could do for the Torah world and for the world of Judaism if he were to accept the prime ministership? But for some incredible reason, he doesn't want it. He's insistent that he doesn't want Netanyahu to be prime minister. <clears throat> but look what he could do if he was. But it's not only that. If he joins the uh, Lapid and Lieberman and the Air of Rav, he will be joining the Air of Rav. And if they go anti-Torah, which they will do, then he will have joined a group that is at war with God, you see, which is a completely anti-Torah government in Israel. And he would have enabled them. <clears throat> what he doesn't realize is God has made him the kingmaker because his six seats can give Netanyahu the coalition that he needs. So God has put him in the position of being a kingmaker, which is beyond belief. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an open miracle. So if he doesn't do that, and he insists on Netanyahu not being the uh, prime minister, and he joins Lapid and so on, then he will be guilty of becoming part of the heir of Rav, which is absolutely astounding. And like I say, to become prime minister in Israel, listen, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that he has. You know, and unfortunately, as of today, he is rejecting the entire offer with all the possibilities of it being done. I hope he realizes this and he decides to become prime minister, notwithstanding the fact that Netanyahu is uh, uh, still prime minister in the second round rotation. But look, Netanyahu is under tremendous indictments. It's only a matter of time until he leaves the government. And then he would have demonstrated, as I said, that he would make an incredible prime minister. 
So just looking at that, he should become the prime minister. You see. Anyway, uh, so this is right now we at the uh, you know uh, cusp of what's going to happen. You know, it's amazing <clears throat> that a person can be offered the keys to heaven and turn it down. This is what I see. I hope he makes the right choice. You know, I really do, because I think he's a tremendously competent person, and I think he could be fabulous as a prime minister. I really do. And uh, I hope he decides to become prime minister. <clears throat> I think that would begin to reverse. Uh, if it was a government of the right and he was prime minister, I really feel that that could reverse the, uh, the entire direction of the anti-Torah thrust of Judea, uh, you know, anti-thrust in Israel. And it could begin to turn it around to reverse and to try to bring much more Judaism into the uh, country, this the, uh, state of Israel. You know, there's an enormous amount that a prime minister can do. <clears throat> and, and obviously, Netanyahu is desperate because he realizes that uh, if he's not prime minister, then the courts will probably go against him. And who knows? He can be. Uh, he can go to jail. Wouldn't be the first time that a, a head head of state, president, or even a prime minister went to jail. Look at you. Know, look at Ehud Olmert, and so on. Anyway, I hope he makes the right choice. I think he'll be a great prime minister, and I hope God gives him the wisdom to do this. I really do. Okay. <clears throat> Any questions? about this particular segment before I go on? Okay. I wanted to talk uh, in terms of what the Ramchal says in the beginning of Derech Hashem, where he begins to go into the whole concept of who is God. And that's really a very important topic. Because, you know, there's a tremendous amount either of outright atheism, people who do not believe there is a God, or agnosticism, which is people who don't know. Not that they say there isn't, but they say we don't know. And until we know, we, we will not do anything in that direction. But the Ramchal offers, in the beginning, <clears throat> uh, statements about the existence of God. <clears throat> Now, you have to remember one thing. The Rabbanisham wants man to know that he exists. So therefore, even though God does not appear, and he is invisible in that sense, you know, and he doesn't appear to mankind, what is very important to understand is God will not do this to mankind, you see, because he really wants mankind, specifically, certainly the Jewish people, you know, and then they, they would, of course, promote this belief to mankind. There has to be some type of indication, something that indicates that there's a, a supreme being of infinite intelligence. Because without that, how would we know? If God puts mankind on this planet without that indication, then how can you blame anybody for not believing in a God? Right? You can't do that to people. To have absolutely no indication whatsoever, and then expect them, they have an obligation to figure out that there's a supreme being that runs the world, 
So that's the question. Did God do that? And the answer has to be yes. And what is it really? What is the indicator, you see, that will show us that there is a supreme being that directs everything? And the Ramchal talks about that, that the foundation or the origin of Jewish belief in the Creator is basically from two directions. One is the direction of history. You see, that we, the Jewish people, come from a nation of prophets, people that were incredibly spiritual, and they were also prophets. What is the concept of prophecy? They were able to speak to God directly in whatever way they did, whether it be, you know, in a prophetic trance or openly or whatever, there are people that spoke to God, you see. So that's a very important idea. The concept of prophecy allows mankind to be in direct communications with God. And the ones who are prophets, they're not, you know, people who are derelicts or, you know, or just average people. They're people who are clearly, they are clearly incredibly spiritual people. Therefore, they have tremendous amount of credibility as to their experience of communicating with God. That's a very important idea to see the people themselves and not just one person. But over the years, there have been thousands and thousands of people of tremendous spiritual heights that have spoken with God in, as a prophet. You see, so that in and of itself is one of the major ways that we know there's a God just from the people who say that they've experienced God. Like I say, we're not looking here at one person or two people or ten. We are looking at hundreds of thousands of people in the days of old that were prophets, you see, besides the prophets of the Tanakh and so on. So that is a very important indicator. That there, like I say, there are people who actually spoke to God. So that's a very important indicator that there is a supreme being. You see, <clears throat> second indicator, right, is there are events where God himself revealed himself to mankind, especially the Jewish people. And of course, I refer to the greatest event of all. The greatest revelation God has ever had to the Jewish people is Matan Torah. is when he gave the Torah. Where God appeared to the entire Jewish people, you see, in a prophetic way, and he gave them the first two commandments. Besides, <clears throat> when we, they received the Torah, they were able to see sights which they have never seen before. Like it says, you have been seen, you have been shown to know, to know, you see, that God is God. <clears throat> he is the Lord, the Master. <clears throat> Besides God, there is nothing else. And Rashi says on that passage that God opened up the heavens 
and he showed the Jewish people that he is the one of the world. You see? So what Rashi is saying, and that's what the Pasuk means, you have been shown that you may know. Shown. You saw it with your own two eyes. Some aspect of God which is beyond comprehension. And they saw uh, that he is truly the root of the entire universe. Now, how would that happen? We don't know. We don't know what they saw. But this is an open verse, possible, in the Torah, you see. And God did that because he wanted to show the beginning of the belief, the emuna of who he is to the Jewish people. And he did that, right, uh, not where they have to deduce it, but he, it was an actual experience of seeing God. And that's what they did. Horesa, you have been shown to know. Shown is a visual experience, which they actually had. Now, the question, of course, is how would that benefit us? Because we have not seen that. And the answer is a very important idea, you see. Because once you show people that you exist visually, with is an actual experience of yourself, where people see you, then they become witnesses. They become eyewitnesses, you see. And what they will do is transmit that testimony that I saw God to their children. And their children will pass that testimony down to their children. So this is actually the testimony that has been passed down to all the generations. It's called historical transmission. You see, now in historical transmission, there are two ideas. What was the original uh, experience that people eyewitnessed? And the second thing is, what is the validity of the transmission? So what the Jews experienced is something beyond what we can possibly imagine. Like Rashi says, that he is the fundamental principle, the only one, the oneness of the entire creation of the world and so on. So that was the observation, you see. That was the event that God made the entire Jewish people, people eyewitnesses. Once that happened, then all of them, because remember, the entire Jewish people, not one person or two people, but the entire nation, and we know there are millions of people that left Egypt. That means millions of people witnessed this event. And what God did, therefore, is he made millions of people an eyewitness to that event. And therefore, that was the original event. That they, as eyewitnesses, would now transmit, right, from generation to generation. You see. Now, <clears throat> this is an incredible testimony because it's not one person saying, I saw God, and then telling that to his kids, right? It's millions of people saying that we saw God. We spoke to him. 
He spoke to us. And they would become eyewitnesses to that event. Comes out, you have millions of witnesses, not one or two or three, but millions of witnesses that observed an unbelievable event, and each one became its own historical transmission. Each person said that to his family, and his kids to their kids, and their kids to their kids, and so on. And that's what we have. You see, Matan Torah was an event like no other, you see. Now, when you think about it, there are other religions that try to say that they saw God or say they saw angels. Uh, but you'll notice it's always one person, like Islam. You know, Muhammad says he's the one that saw the angel Gabriel, Gabriel. Okay, he's the only one. Well, besides him, who else saw this? So therefore, you are basing your entire belief system, a person you know, who believes this, you're basing the entire belief system, and therefore your entire life, right, the situation, based on the testimony of one man. And I'm not going into the other ideas of why his testimony is so dubious, totally. But it's still only one person. Why would anybody believe anything based on the testimony of one man? You see? That doesn't make sense. Now, the same thing with Yeshu, Jesus. You know, the critical thing in Christianity of their religion is that he rose from the dead. But who saw him rise from the dead? Four women? That's what it's recorded in the, in the New Testament. So you're going to believe four women that say that he rose from the dead? I'm not even going into the fact that the New Testament is filled with divergence, divergencies in terms of the experience. Opposite. Everybody's got their own story. But why would anybody conduct his whole life based on the testimony of four women? You see? And that itself, there's tremendous amount of contradictions in the New Testament. How did they see him? When did they see him? But nobody saw him got, getting up from the dead. You see? They, at most, they would say that they encountered him. But nobody actually saw him arise from the dead. Uh, and that's it. That's, the whole Christianity is based on the testimony, basically, of four women. Which, of course, doesn't make any sense. So, God avoids this. He says, I will give them an event which is unbelievable. And it's not going to be witnessed by one person three people or four people or whatever. It's going to be witnessed by millions of people. And the objective and the benefit was to make these people, all of them, first witnesses, eyewitnesses, you see. Now, if Judaism was false, why would the Torah say that God is saying to them, I have, you have, all of you have seen me, you have not seen a picture or anything like that. You have actually spoken to me. Because millions of people don't lie. You can have a couple of people lying. But if millions of people have seen God and experienced God directly, you know, you weaken your religion because nobody's going to say this if it was false. You see? So therefore the fact that millions of people saw God 
and communicated with God makes each particular eyewitness the origin of a historical transmission, you see. And therefore, Martin Turner becomes one of the greatest reasons that we know that there is a God. The concept of millions of people having observed him, you see. And then we have the transmission process. And the transmission process was incredibly accurate, very accurate. You know, where the Torah was recorded, every word was counted, every letter. And you see that even in the, in the Gemara when they talk about the laws. It will say that so-and-so said in the name of so-and-so, in the name of so-and-so, in the name of so-and-so. They were tremendously, you know, they labored to accurately describe the transmission chain, you see. And the beauty of this, it was never really broken. Because the Jew who lives today, right, really is a descendant of the Jews who were at Matan Torah. The Jews have been around for thousands of years. There is no nation of antiquity that can say that. They've all disappeared, right? And they've assimilated into other peoples. But the Jewish nation is the only nation of antiquity that is the same nation that was at Matan Torah 3,300 years ago. So there's no interruption, really, in the transmission of the testimony of Matan Torah, you see. So that also is a very, very important idea. The whole concept of what was the first event, how many people witnessed it, you see, and then how was it transmitted? If you ask yourself, for instance, how do we know that there was a man named Abraham Lincoln? I didn't see him. You didn't see him. So how do we know that he existed? Or how do we know of what he did? And the answer is because he, people, saw him. People who lived at his time saw him. And they recorded what they saw. There are thousands of people, millions perhaps, who saw Abraham Lincoln, who heard Abraham Lincoln, who voted for the man, and they told it to their kids. And then they wrote it down as a historical document of what they saw. So there are millions and millions of people that saw Abraham Lincoln. And they wrote it down. People wrote books about it. People told their children about it and so on. So that's how we know there was a guy named Abraham Lincoln. All history is this way. Oh, you see, what is the validity or the historicity of history, it's validation. It's only because many, many people, the more people, the more credibility, saw him, saw the person, and they wrote down what they saw, and they told this over to their kids, and it was taught in schools to kids, you see? And these kids taught it to the next generation of kids, and they wrote it down too, and so on. I'm not even going into the fact that there are documents that clearly testify that he existed because he wrote documents and he signed documents. So you have all this evidence that there was a guy named Abraham Lincoln. You see? And that is how we validate history. 
If not, then how do we know anybody lived? You see? How do you know there's a guy named Julius Caesar? I mean, he was like 2,300 years, 2,200 years ago, <clears throat> and so on. All history is based on this, on eyewitnesses that, uh, that saw the original event, if it was a person or whatever, and they wrote it down, and they taught it to their kids, and it was taught to, to schools, to the students of the schools. That's how we know that any of these things took place. You see? Now, when you look at this type of historicity, the, uh, the historical validity, uh, Judaism has the greatest historical validity of all because you have millions of people, at least 2.4 million people that left Egypt because we know 600,000 males above the age of 20 and if you count the women and at least a couple of kids and, and people below 20, you arrive at a staggering number of at least almost two and a half million people. And they all saw God at Mount Terra. They saw him. They spoke to him. He spoke to them, you see. And they witnessed all the miracles in the desert, you know, miracles that we cannot even imagine, the Shekhinah, the divine presence. And they all saw him, you see. They interacted with God. And they taught this to their generations. They taught it in schools, you see. That's how we know. And God did that on purpose because he, he wants to make sure there has to be a solid base of belief in God. The Muna, there has to be a solid base. And the historical transmission is the, one of the greatest historical evidences that we have. And this is true of all history, whether it be uh, Jewish history, secular history, you know, national nation, the history of nations, and so on. Everything is based on, you know, the eyewitness accounts of the first witnesses who transmitted all of that down the generations. Therefore, the religion called Judaism has probably the greatest historical validation of all time, as opposed to many other religions. Because they say, like I said, well, it was witnessed by one person, he told it over what he saw and so on. Who cares? It's only one person. You're going to base your whole life's behavior based on one person? You see? Like Islam, which is all one person. Or Christianity, which is what? A couple of women? Whatever. Or other religions, you know, that are uh, on this earth. You know, for instance, Joseph Smith, uh, which is Mormonism that he spoke to some angel, Komoroni, gave him golden plates, right? Who says? We never saw the golden plates. They don't exist. We should believe it because he said this? Uh, when you think about that, none of this makes sense. You know, a person says, hey, you know, if I want to believe something, it's got to be based on solid evidence because every religion will make demands on me. And I'm not going to live a whole life based on the musings of an individual. Now, if that individual has emotional problems, it's even worse, you see. Or if I examine the documents that he supposedly wrote or he says was written by others and has, you know, clear indications of contradictions and, and, and falsehoods and so on, of 
course you're not going to live your life based on the testimony of this person. That's what it is. Therefore, Judaism has one of the strongest statements of a historical event that took place, which is Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. And besides that, you know, the historical transmission process is unbelievably accurate. Like I say, because we're around, we are the we are the original nation, right? That our ancestors stood in front of Mount Sinai. You know, we didn't hear this from other some other secular nation that they heard from somebody else. No, we are the original people because the Jewish people go back four thousand years to Avram Avinu, right? And we go back. We're all descendants of the people who left Egypt. You see. Uh, so that in and of itself, this historical validity is one of the greatest proofs of which no other religion can say. It's one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God and of the existence of the Torah. You see. And like I say, also the f- fact that we've seen people who we see are incredibly righteous. And they're not given over to falsehoods, you see. <clears throat> and we see that, and they say that they are Nevi'im, prophets, right? And their, and their words are recorded and taught to all the descendants after them. That's a second indication. That there's actually, like I said, there's actually a phenomenon, right, that says there is a God. And people actually experience God, even after Matan you see, and we see that these people are not ordinary people. They're not liars. They don't fabricate history, you see. And when you look at the Chumash, or you look at the Tanakh and so on, there are thousands of people that were prophets, you know, tremendously righteous people. We see from the writings how righteous they were. So that also is a tremendous validation that there is a God and that the Torah is authentic, that it was actually given by God. So this then forms the basis of our emuno, of our faith, that Judaism is true, what it says is true, God is real, God intervenes in the affairs of man, God has, um, he has uh, requirements or obligations in what he says, that he wants man to abide by, God will hold everybody accountable for what he chooses to do in life, you see, and God will reward or punish those who he sees will deserve it, you see. All of these things are part of the testimony of the Torah, you see, which was witnessed by the entire Jewish nation at an event that transpired in front of everybody the entire Jewish nation thousands of years ago. So, that is the basis of Emuno. That is one basis. There is, however, another basis which is independent of history of which I will speak about the next week and that is the whole concept of what is the probability that this world could have come by chance. 
That's a very important idea uh, because there's a tremendous amount of mathematics behind it. Not that I will go into the mathematics, but there's a tremendous amount of scientific validations of the existence of God, of the existence of a supreme intelligence, of the existence of an intelligence that has actually interacted with man. And certainly all of this has been, in the last couple of hundred years, all of this has been tremendously pronounced, you know, and in many ways, by itself, the whole concept of scientific validation by itself testifies to the existence of a creator, the existence of a supreme being, you see, that has expectations of man. And for that I will go into next week, you see. And then you'll understand that both of these are the pillars of Imuna, of the belief of God. Uh, and the, the Ramchal mentions, like I said, these two areas of proof. The historical validity, which I've just enumerated now, and the whole concept, you know, of, of uh, the uh, scientific evidence for the existence of God, you see, which I will go into. Any questions? Mm-hmm. And by the way, Maybe all of this become all of this, by the way, which is interesting, all of this will become readily available and apparent in the Messianic era. Every Jew will become a prophet. Well, you won't even have to believe. You will know that there is a God. Because you will speak to God. You will be the recipient of His information, His messages, His communications. Every Jew. In fact, prophecy will be as easy to access in the Messianic era as it is to talk to your friend. That's how easy it will be. <clears throat> you see. Will everyone but, be on the same level of prophet prophetic capabilities? Probably each person will be a prophet, but the level of prophecy has to do probably with the way you conducted your life. So I would imagine everybody will be a Novi, but just like in the Novi, you know, there are levels of Nevoah. For instance, you know, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu obviously was greater in prophecy than other people. Then you had Shmuel Hanavi, who was an incredible prophet and so on. Then you had the latter-day prophets, Ezekiel, Yechezkel, who was on a lower rung of prophecy, you know. But the minimal level of prophecy is to be able to speak to God, to be able to communicate with God himself. That's a minimal level of prophecy. And everybody will have that. You see. But that's when Olam Haba comes, correct? Olam Haba, there won't be Nevoah. Olam Haba is a world in which you are in direct contact with God. It's different. Prophecy, as incredible, incredible as it is, is where God is external to you, you see. And you are in communications with him, but he is an external being, even though you're experiencing him 
Oilem Haba is not that. Oilem Haba is where you experience the fact that you emanate from God. That He's part of you and you're part of Him. That's really what the concept of Dvekas is. That there is no separation. There are no barriers. Oilem Haba is unique. We have no idea what that means. That you actually emanate and you feel the emanation. You feel he's part of you. You see, it's like, you know, you feel your arm is part of you. Your arm is not an external appendage. It's part of you. That will be the same thing. Where God will be part of you. And you will be part of him. So obviously, that is an completely different type of relationship. And that will go on forever. So I would, I would not call it prophecy. You see? So, so the prophecy years, that's the a thousand years before Olam Haba comes? Yes. Yes. The world of prophecy will be in the Messianic era. But after the Messianic era, in the year so 2024... to 7,000? Well, no, that's until 6,000. Until the English year 2240. After that, the world changes. You see. <clears throat> so in the beginning, your relationship with God, it will still be external. But starting from the 8,000th year, right, which is the year 3340, you will begin to experience God internally. And that takes a while until the 10,000th year, is the begin nine thousand and one is the beginning of Ulam Habo. And that is the era when you are God are fused as one. You see. There's a fusion that takes place. That's Vapus. That never ends. And that experience is something we cannot even begin to understand. You see. And then we all look forward to that. That's the greatest existence known to the entire creation. There is nothing greater than Dvekas in Ulam Habo, attachment to God in the future world. Nothing exists that's greater than that fusion, that attachment. So, as soon as we all wake up from Tehiyat HaMetim, that's when the prophecy begins? Yes, that's when it begins. <clears throat> Correct. Because the Zoya Mauba will have been removed. <clears throat> In fact, that's what we see. It says that a handmaiden, right, or maidservant, at Kriya Syamsuf, at the splitting of the Red Sea, she was able to see more of divinity than Yechezkel, Ezekiel, the prophet, which when you think about it is incredible. How could that be? Yecheskel is the book, the Sefer, that has the concept of the divine chariot, the Maisimer Koba, which is the basic structure of Kabbalah. So how could she have seen more than him? And the answer is because after seven days when they left Egypt, right, then one-seventh of the Zoyamah had left, because we know what the 49 days was. It was the removing, removal of the 49 levels of tumor, defilement. So once she had removed 
one-seventh of that defilement, her prophecy was much greater than Yechezkel. From the mere fact that she had removed her defilement, whereas he had never, you see, because he had Zoyamah, like everybody else. Therefore, she was a greater prophet. So clearly, the Nevoah of, of anybody after Chesamesim is much greater. You see. <clears throat> anyway, this is what we have to look forward to. You see. Any other questions? Or statements? <laughs> so during the time of Mashiach, there won't be any other uh, prophets other than Mashiach himself? No, it'll be him and us. The Mashiach will have the greatest prophecy because he has to transmit to everybody the Torah of the Orishan, the O Mashiach. He's the one who brings the Messianic Torah down. It's not another Torah. It's the Torah fully revealed. You see, it is a Torah which we cannot even begin to imagine the extent, the volume of that Torah he will bring down. So in that sense, it's like Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, who, who brought down, the, who revealed the Torah. Mashiach will reveal the Torah of Moshe in much, almost infinitely greater quantities. We cannot even imagine what the Torah is. And I once said, there's a Medrash Rabbah that says that the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu is hevel, ear, luft, compared to the Torah of the Mashiach. Which means under the Messianic era, which is a physical time without Zoyama, then the amount of Torah that will be revealed is staggering, that we cannot even imagine what that is, you see. And that the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu is minuscule compared to the revelation of divinity, of the divine Torah, when the Mashiach comes. And like I said, and the Medrash continues, that the Torah of the Mashiach, as awesome as it is, is minuscule, is air, luft, compared to the Torah in Olam Haba. In other words, we will be privy to the laws and rules and secrets of existence that no being has ever seen. And when I say being, I mean angels. The greatest angels are completely in the dark as to what will be in the future world. We, however, the Nishamas, that will live in Olam Haba, will be receiving all of that. And not only that, but there's enough knowledge, there's enough ideas to go on for eternity, which is awesome. That means it never stops, because that's the future. It's eternal. <clears throat> you see? And that's what it is in the future world. So there are levels of prophecy, you know, but it really begins <clears throat> uh, in the Messianic era. <clears throat> you know, after Tchir that's when everybody becomes a Novi. Then your entire life is completely different. 
It's called a paradigm shift. You see. And remember, that's in the Messianic era. I'm not talking about the, f- the future world. You see? And that Messianic era is right up ahead. It's not far away. You see? So, Mashiach and David is the one who's going to teach us the Messianic, <coughs> uh, the Orishan of the Torah? Actually, it's really Mashiach and Yosef. Both of them will rule. But the Mashiach ben David is the king. Mashiach ben Yosef is the teacher at that point in time. You see. And he will be teaching us the Orishan, the Messianic light, the O Mashiach. You see. And Mashiach ben David is the sort of like the executive branch. You know, he will be the king. But actually, they're both kings. They're both Malachim. You see. But they have different functions in the Messianic era. Mashiach ben David is the executive, like the king. Mashiach ben Yosef is the instructor. And he is the one who introduces all divinity and everything. You see? So at, so that, point, at that point, when, um, let's say, Moshe Rabbeinu is alive and all the forefathers are alive, what is their um, role in in it, like, because we always said we're going to learn from them too. We're gonna we want to hear their classes. Like, what are they going to be doing if Mashiach and Yosef is the one that's teaching us? Well, that's really a very good question. You know, uh, it's not clear what their contribution will be to the messianic light. You see, um, it's not clear because the real transmitter and revealer of that Torah of that enormous, that, uh, you know, enormous uh, uh, you know, uh, knowledge is basically transmitted from the Mashiach ben Yosef. Maybe they will be instructors of his ore. Maybe he will give it to them, and then they will somehow pass it down. That could be, you see? Oh, like the 70 elders? Yeah, exactly, like the uh, 70 elders, exactly, yeah. In other words, they will further transmit, because Moshe Rabbeinu taught it to Aaron, and then Aaron taught it to Elizabeth Yisama, and then they taught it to the 70 elders, and then the 70 elders taught it to the rest of the Jewish people, maybe to the Levium, and then to the Jewish people, and so on. So there is a transmission process, a teaching process, that's in all likelihood what will be. But each and every person will have his private line, so to speak, with God. You know? And that's the concept of prophecy in the Messianic era. So you'll be able to dial God directly. So Rabbi, now that the Gideon Stars doesn't want to take the position, what's going to be with Israel right now? Uh, well, like I say, you know, um, the question is, are we headed into a darker period where the heir of Rav has now achieved an incredible victory? And that will be the last victory of the heir of Rav. You know, I'm hoping he won't do that. I'm hoping he will wake up and realize what the correct behavior is, what the correct direction is, you know. But that's really what we will know within the week. What? 
It sounds like how like Biden won here, and it, we went into a darker period. Maybe Hashem needs all the, the the you know the enemies to be up in high positions so that he could bring them all down. Correct. That's really what's happening. Biden is complete darkness and suffering. That's why he is the president of the United States. America is being severely punished because America is a beacon to the entire world. And America is destroying civilization by their insanity in terms of what they're doing. In terms of gender, that they are racing gender distinctions. They are permitting gender marriages between men and men, women and women, and who knows what else is going on. They are destroying the whole concept of crime, of police, the judicial system, all of this is corrupted. Oh, you see, they're destroying the economy. It's a bunch of mad, insane people that want to control everybody else. The ultimate power grab, that's why they all want to be communists, because that's the ultimate power grab. It's all about gaiva, incredible, unmitigated arrogance. That's what it's all about. They don't care if people suffer and so on, you know. I mean, you walk outside now and you see what's going on. And thank God, we, I mean, I live in Lakewood and you, you people live in Deal. You know, you could see the, the craziness. Uh, New York used to be the greatest city on earth. And now it's been dragged into the mud by insane people you see, which is incredible. And it's New York City, New York State, California, Los Angeles. This is going on throughout America. All of this is destroying America because God is punishing America, you see. And like I said, you know, America is destroying civilization, which is unbelievable when you think about that, you see. Anyway, that's what's happening. Israel hopefully will not follow that way and they won't go that way because if the Erev Rav gets in you're going to see an unbelievable war against Torah and Judaism. And that's the last stand of the Sitra Achra, the Sultan, you see. That's his last stand. Would you okay. say, Rabbi, that we're at the 48th level of Tumah? Like, are we, like... We are at the 49th. We are at the 49th. Oh, we already hit 49. Oh, yeah. We are in it. We are in it. <clears throat> yeah. We are watching civilization disintegrate. Slowly. And that's what, uh, you know, Biden, the Democratic Party, the progressives the anti-Semites. I mean, that's why we're watching a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism. You know, all of this is coming out now because the Sutton is dying. He's trying to survive. And the only weapon that he has is a prosecution against the sins of the Jewish people. You see, that's his only weapon. He has no other weapon. 
Unfortunately, he is successful in prosecuting the Jewish people and whatever sins they have. I think what saves the Jews is most of them don't have free will. It's very, very limited. I think that's what saves. And therefore, because they have no free will or very little free will, because they have tremendous amount of ignorance, and therefore that saves them from giving power to the sudden. You see. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why uh, there's so much ignorance among the Jewish people in terms of the Torah, is that their sins should not count as strong as what it used to count many years ago. So the Sutton doesn't have all that, you know, fuel that he can survive. But notwithstanding that, that's what's doing it. The Sutton is dying, and he's trying his best way to destroy, uh, you know, to really, to reinstate himself. It looks, like he, it looks like he's the strongest right now. It looks like he's what? It doesn't look like he's dying. It looks like he's well, the strongest right now. Yeah, but you have to remember his, the reason why, because his weapon is not his, you know, it's not the one he looks, it's his prosecution that's his weapon. You see? And unfortunately, there are enough Jews who do this. That's why you see a great deal of punishment to Orthodox Jews, because they're the ones who can feed the Sultan, because they have the greatest amount of free will. And therefore, all those tragedies that have happened, in many ways, are directed against Orthodox. You see. But he is... Rabbi, I have a question. When yep. in regards to making Aliyah, um, like if we look at previous and um, before the Holocaust, um, the Jews lived beautifully, they had great life, they were so wealthy, and then slowly, slowly, they didn't take the signs and they didn't leave, and then they ended up having a Holocaust. And I feel like we're seeing parallels to what had happened right before the Holocaust, to what we're living now in America, um, when is it like a point where people are like, where it's going to, before it's too late? Well, in a certain sense, it's like 1930 or 33, with the rise of Hitler and Mark Shemai, you know, where there's a, a, a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism. The real problem is that nobody cares. All the politicians don't care. They don't say a word, which is astounding. There are very few politicians that speak. I mean, Schumer, who calls himself Schumer, the guardian Schumer, of Israel. Yeah. I mean, it's a joke. This man is afraid to say anything, you see? because he's afraid of losing the election to AOC. So he doesn't say anything. But he's the, the highest Jewish official in the entire country, and he says nothing. You see? So what is so disturbing is not just the anti-Semitic acts. It is the silence of these people that have been elected, and that is their responsibility to talk against you know, inequality, that's what's so disturbing. And that is also what is so dangerous. 
because you no longer have rational people running the government. You have all kinds of city councils that want to remove the police, defund the police. Are they insane? That's the only thing that stands between us. You know, you see, that's it. Uh, they want to remove that barrier. Yeah, we are being governed by insane people, morons, fools, that will destroy civilization. Because without an effective police force, there is no civilization. And it's every man for himself. You see? And that's what we're watching. And God has allowed this. Because I believe it's a tremendous punishment to America for the descent of America into immorality and indecency, you see. And uh, that's really what it is. You know, God is really, uh, you know, in a certain sense, he's very angry at America for what they have done to his world because they promote, you know, and encourage incredible uh, immorality in, on all fronts. Therefore, he's allowing those people who are absolutely incompetent, you know, and idiotic to reign. This is all from God. None of this can happen without his permission. And this is what's happening. You see? <clears throat> In any case, uh, so far this is what's happening uh, in terms of Israel, America, and the whole concept of the existence of God. And uh, we will continue next week. God Thank willing. You, Rabbi. <laughs>